Welcome to the Nicholas Natalie Show. Today I'm chatting with Art Bell. Art Bell is the founder of Comedy Central. Yes, you heard that correctly. Comedy Central. While working at HBO in the late 80s, he pitched the idea of an all-comedy channel, but was told it was a stupid idea. When the chairman of HBO accidentally heard of his idea, it was a go. His book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, was recently published and tells the amazing story of how it all happened. From idea, through Comedy Central's first six years, where he was a senior programming and marketing executive. All of it. During that time, he also co-authored a humor book entitled Web Sightings, a collection of websites we'd like to see. After leaving Comedy Central, Art became president of Court TV, where he was a guiding force behind one of the most successful brand evolutions in cable television. In addition to writing, he plays piano and jazz drums. Art Bell currently resides in Connecticut and Deer Valley, Utah with his wife. What a freaking guy. Before we dive into the episode like a chip and some dip, I want to talk to my friends who have a business idea and are wanting to take it to the next level. What's up, entrepreneurs? I got a tasty little snack you're going to like. Not a literal snack. It's more like a wisdom snack. If you're looking to optimize your performance, scale your business, my man Scott Anderson from Double Dare You has served a tasty treat that you might just devour. Scott is an entrepreneur coach and business consultant who has helped scale over 550 businesses and more than 2,200 executives. It's only going up. The number is climbing. He's offering listeners of the Nicholas and Tally Show a free consultation call. It's free. If it makes you feel any better, I've locked in my own free consultation call. You can do that by visiting doubledareu.us to schedule your free consultation call today. That's D-O-U-B-L-E-D-A-R-E-Y-O-U.us for your free consultation call. Since you're going to be using a technological device online, go ahead and go to nicholasitalli.com slash shop for some merch. Get the god dang merch, baby. Summer is coming up and I know you want to look good for that person you are romantically attracted to. Can't go wrong with the merch. Get the current gear while you can. Go to youtube.com slash Nicholas for videos every single Monday and leave a five-star review for this podcast. We are so close to 55-star reviews. I can taste it. You guys can give me a little snack. Be a part of this movement. Share this episode with a friend on the social medias. Tell everyone you know. Tell all the baddies and booze that you text. Just send them this episode. If you want to sponsor the podcast, reach out to me at Nicholas Itali on Instagram for more information. Riddle of the week, what has a lot of eyes but cannot see? Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out. This podcast episode was mixed and mastered by Grant Singer. If you'd like Grant to audio engineer your music, podcast, or anything audio related, reach out to him on Instagram, Grant Singer, at Grant Singer. That's G-R-A-N-T-E-S-I-N-G-E-R on Instagram. I could not recommend him more highly. Quality audio engineering, quality guy, Grant Singer. That was the intro. Now here is the episode. Hello and welcome. This is the Nicholas Natalie Show. I am your host, Nicholas Natalie. Today we have a very special guest, Art Bell. Art, season's greetings. Hey, Nicholas, how are you? Great to be here. I'm doing fantastic and I'm very excited you're here. And here's where I want to start. And here's what I know. You're born in Jersey Shore in New Jersey, and some of your earliest desires as a kid was growing up to be a famous scientist and to be funny. And in all my days, I have never heard of a, a young child wanting to grow up to be a famous scientist. Why was that at the top of your mind at such a young age? Well, you know, I, I guess I was one of those kids who was fascinated with 
all things science from a very early age. And for some reason, you know, and who knew, who knows how these things happen when you're growing up. But you know, around the age of four and four or five, I started wondering how things worked and taking things apart and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, people said, "Wow, you should be a scientist." And it was one of those things where I thought, "What's a scientist?" And then when I found out what a scientist was, I thought, "That's cool." And if they think I should be a scientist, maybe I should. And scientists are smart, and I want to be smart. So it was that kind of, you know, kid logic to get me into the let's be a scientist. And then I just kept going with it. Read a lot of science. You know, we had a friend who was an, uh, a chemist and uh, gave me a lot of stuff to read. And then, you know, I started reading when I was in like sixth or seventh grade. I was reading about relativity and stuff. I mean, they saw me coming when the library, you know, yeah. opened. Yeah. And uh, the librarian said, oh, we got a new book for you. So and it was that kind of thing. I don't think I was actually that smart. I think I was just kind of following up on this. Okay, if you're going to be smart, you're going to have to read a lot of books about science. That's a good strategy to go by. You know, what is what is a what does a smart person do? They read books, and then you got in there and you started reading some books. I have a question about um, a story that I read where your dad taught you how to throw a punch. Oh yeah, and you were probably around five years old and you threw your first punch. Yeah. What was going on and why did you have to learn how to throw a punch? Well, you really start early in the, uh, in the biography here, <laughs> which is fine. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, in the old days, you know, they just opened the door and let the kids go outside and do whatever the heck they wanted to do. And I was five and that's, you know, they opened yeah. the door and I went outside so there was this kid down the street named Jeffrey Zeichner, and he was sort of my friend. It was one of those things where he was my friend, but he was a little bit older and bigger than me. And he used to, he used to like bully me, you know, and hit me and push me and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that very much. So I, I went and I asked my dad about it, and he said, "Well, you know, listen. Next time somebody pushes you, or punches you, you should punch him back." And I said, well, how do I punch, you know? And then, then I went through the thing. I think a lot of guys do this. I don't know, but I certainly did. You know, my father taught me how to make a fist. So it wasn't, you know, it was a real live fist and uh, how to throw a roundhouse punch. And, you know, I, mean, I don't think I got a whole lot of instruction, but just, you know, okay, so next time this happens, you're going to punch mm -hmm. the kid, right? And I said, yeah, I'll punch back. Yeah. <laughs> so the next time it happened, which was like a couple of days later, I did punch the kid and, uh, the kids started crying. Jeffrey started crying. I, I must have hit him pretty hard. <laughs> and uh, I guess that was the idea. And on top of his crying, his eyes started bleeding. And that, that was worrisome to me, right? So I went into the house and I said to my parents, um, you know, I just, Jeffrey started picking on me again. And my dad said, okay, what'd you do? And I said, well, I did what you said. I punched him. <laughs> and he said, good for you. And he said, well, and I said, yeah, but he's crying. And they said, well, well, did you hurt him? Did you really hurt him? I said, I guess so. I don't know. And his eyes bleeding. And they went, his eyes bleeding? <laughs> and they ran outside. <laughs> and this kid, was his eye was bleeding. I, you know, I don't know if I cut him over the eye or I punched out his eyeball. I don't to this day know what happened. But all I remember is my father said, okay, we're going to have to have another talk about this. And we walked Jeffrey home and my father explained to his father what happened and nobody seemed too happy, but I was five years old. So I was, you know, it was like, I was just yeah. trying to process what the heck went wrong. You know, I did everything I was supposed to. Anyway, that was a story. That's hilarious. Dad told me to throw the haymaker and I threw it. I'm, I'm in the yeah. clear. 
Yeah. Uh, now I will say, I will say that funny. was useful because growing up, I was, you know, I was a short kid growing up and I got, you know, I got picked up, picked on a lot. And my strategy was always just to be like, okay, you want to, you want to mess around with me? I'm going to get crazy and go nuts and have a big fight with you. And that worked pretty much to keep, yeah. keep, keep the bad kids away. And then did you switch to using comedy and humor as a weapon or like maybe not weapon is the right word, but like as a uh, de-escalator when those situations started to arise? Yeah, I think I did actually. I I think uh, there were two things that happened that kept me safe. One was trying to defuse the the situation with comedy, which worked, you know, about half the time. But what really worked was I made friends with big kids. And that was where I really kind of oh, nice. found that being funny came in handy because, because they ended up liking me. And I, I found out that if they liked me, then they would protect me. And that was that was a good thing. And also, I, I will say this, they also let me play, you know, like when we were playing basketball, when they were playing basketball or football or whatever they were playing, you know, even though I wasn't an athlete per se, you know, these were kids on the basketball team and the football team. Uh, but in pickup games, they always let me play and we had a great time because I was fun and funny and everything else. And uh, I, I I think about that a lot because I know, you know, I'm older, but my kids grew up and that it was all about organized team play. You know, you had joined a team mm-hmm. and there was less of the pickup game thing. And I, I, thought, I thought something was lost. Do you think it was the organic relationships that are built and like maybe the spontaneity of just getting a pickup game together with your friends, what, what's lost? You know, there's so much joy that you get out of sports. Uh, I, I don't have to convince anybody that playing sports. Uh, and in those pickup games, you know, the mere, the mere act of, you know, hitting an outside shot, you know, is just so much fun. Yeah, And the fact is it, you know, I saw more and more that if you weren't, you know, very tall and very athletic, then you weren't going to be playing much basketball. And that's too bad, you know, because mm-hmm. I wasn't tall. And I mean, I was athletic enough, but it would have been, it would have been nice uh, if I, I think, I think, and, and actually this isn't just me. I've read several professional athletes comment on the fact that pickup games are really, really important. And just because there's all this organized sports, we shouldn't lose the joy of pickup games uh, and letting everybody play. Yeah, I agree with that. You lose some of the passion. And I think the other thing for me when I play pickup ball is like the social satisfaction of either beating your friend or competing with one of your close friends. That's that's pretty rewarding to me. Yeah, definitely. But in lines of getting older, you know, you're, you're, you're making – friends that are bigger, stronger, what have you. And let's just say you're in high school. And in high school, you started an underground newspaper that I was thrilled to find out about. I think it's hilarious. The Tongue. And you wrote satire about your teachers, you know, fellow students, high school life. And the first thing I thought of was, you got to get caught at some point. (laughs) What are some of your favorite pieces you remember of having this underground newspaper? And how did you get caught? Did you get caught? What happened? Well, (laughs) We got caught by design. I mean, there were only, Mm. I don't know what we did, you know, a dozen issues over the two years we did it. It wasn't like the thing was showing up every week. And in those days, you know, we didn't have computers. You had to lay this stuff out. You had to cut out, type it up, cut it out, put it on boards, get it photographed, get it, you know, and get it printed up. 
And then what we would do is we would go to school early and we'd just like pass the thing out to everybody. So it wasn't like we were trying to hide it. Right. It was underground in that it wasn't the sanctioned paper. Got it. The fact of the matter is everybody laughed at it. Everybody thought it was very, very funny. A lot of people took offense and the teachers also laughed at it and were slightly offended. But, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was like everybody thought it's a good thing we have this this uh, little bit of humor to keep us going. Um, as far as favorite stories, hmm, that's a tough one. We did, <laughs> we did in the classic tradition of satire and comedy, get in trouble for writing a story about how we were aggravated that the football players got all the dates and and the the, the nerds mm-hmm. didn't get any, and uh, trying to figure out what to do about that. We had some uh, tense conversations with the football players after that. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what was said in the article. I just don't think it was too flattering to the football players, but uh, we got through it. We were all friends in those days, you know? We were friends. Yeah. What a what a great idea. It seems like it built more morale than it didn't, so that's that's always reassuring. Oh, yeah. And then- yeah, you know something? And it taught us how to write. You know, it's it's interesting. Again, I think about the old days. When you, when you start something on your own, when you're a bunch of kids in high school, you start it on your own and you don't have a faculty advisor. Think about that. Think about that. And nobody's yeah. telling you what, what's good or what's bad or what you can do or what you can't do. And we were just having fun writing. And uh, we, we wrote a song. I, I remember one. We wrote a, a song called the In-School Suspension Blues because they had just instituted in-school suspension. Do you know what that is? Is that a <sighs> thing now? I don't even know. In-school it, suspension was, was a thing a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In-school, in-school suspension was like you had to go to school, but you wouldn't go to class. They put you in this room with other kids in in-school suspension, and it was like jail. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. You just sat there. And uh, so we wrote the in-school suspension blues. You know, it was kind of a tribute to the Johnny Nash, I'm in prison, and it's things are things are tough and all that stuff. And uh we actually uh, ended up singing that at graduation. They asked us to sing it at graduation. So, you know, again, it was an underground paper, but we we were kind of like adopted as the, you know, as the crazy cool kids or whatever. I don't know. It's fun. You made it mainstream. You made it made it uh Yeah. You made it fun, acceptable. And right. I think that's Exactly. That's, uh, right. that's telling enough. Exactly. Cuz right. I remember I got in school suspension once. And the thing about in school suspension is at least if you're suspended at home, at least in my case, I had more freedom to do things, you know, like you could at least like make a sandwich or do anything you want inside of your house. When you're in school suspension, you are, it is the true form of a. It's torture. <laughs> it's torture yeah. to try and keep a kid like doing nothing for hours at a time. Eight hours. Yeah. We, we thought it was crazy. And actually I, I will say in the great tradition of Jonathan Swift and the other great satirists, we did get a response. They they did away with in school suspension. Wow! Because we pointed Look out that. how inhumane it was. <laughs> <laughs> Making an impact. Yep. That's <laughs> that's what you got to do. That's funny. All right, you graduate. They, you sing the song at graduation, and then they kick you out. You're off to the next thing. Yeah. You go to Swar- Swarthmore College. Yeah. And you snag a bachelor's that. degree. Yeah, that's a tough word for me to say, Swarthmore. And yeah, well, actually, you, you snag- say Swarthmore. Swarthmore. <laughs> Even tougher. There you go. <laughs> uh, you snag a degree in economics, you know, right. and you're doing you're doing a few few comedy sketches. You're doing theater, and from what I know, 
I'm still I'm still hitting home here. Your brothers are funny. Your uncle is funny. And I don't know what the age between the difference is between you and your brothers. But at this point, when you're in college, are all of you still pursuing the comedy route in some degree? Or are you the last last soldier standing? Two of us were and, and have been. And one of us wasn't. And we, we remained friends and, and uh, close through the years. My... When you say I was doing sketch comedy and stuff, that was in college. Yeah, I was doing some sketch comedy in college, some more writing and everything else. My younger brother, Brian, three years younger, didn't really go that route. That wasn't his thing. My youngest brother, Larry, went to University of Michigan, and he was in the theater program there. And he got involved in improvisational comedy. He was very funny. When we were growing up, he was very funny. I mean, he was always the one, you know, he's a... He, he was, uh, even when he was four or five years old, he was doing slapstick, you know. I remember my father told him he was not eating properly. He was being very sloppy. And Larry just picked up his bowl of spaghetti and dumped it on his, on his lap as a response. <laughs> we thought that was hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so Larry, yeah, he went on to do um, theater and, and improvisational comedy. And he was with a New York-based improv comedy group for years and years. Very funny, and a lot of a lot of um, you know real talent went through there. So uh, yeah, that was that's it. that's crazy. So did you guys feed off of each other in any form um, while in college, or was it just you guys were both pursuing your own thing? No, nah, we were pursuing our own thing. You got to remember there was six years between us, and when you're you know when you're 21 in college, uh-huh. and your brother's 14 or 15. It's it's not like you're hanging out together in the same way. So no, we, we actually, yeah. uh, we were actually, everybody was doing, doing his own thing at that point. That makes sense. So what I'm curious about here is you get a degree in, uh, economics. Is there a reason you didn't jump straight into comedy? If, if comedy had played this bigger, bigger part in your life growing up? Yes. And it's, it's because when I was growing up, my parents always stressed the fact that you had to have a profession. And whenever mm. we thought about doing anything in the arts, that was, you know, that was to be considered a hobby because nobody can actually make a living in the arts, uh, including television and film, which I was very interested in, in as a kid, very interested in television and film. Um, and when I was in college, I, I took some film courses and did some writing. You know, I, I thought about it. And I had friends who were doing that. But my parents said, no, you have to have a profession. And this was particularly interesting because my mother was the piano teacher in town. She was mm-hmm. a piano teacher. Mm-hmm. She had been like a piano prodigy. And, uh, but from her point of view, it's like, you know, don't do that. So I didn't even consider it. And I had friends who went to Hollywood right out of college and became f- famous comedy writers which is interesting. And I said, no, no, I, I can't do that. So I got an offer as to, uh, to be an, an economist at a consulting firm in Washington, D.C. and actually paid money. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I took the job and I went to Washington. I worked for three years and it was terrific. I was, uh, it was my really smart days. I was, uh, and things went downhill from there, I have to say. But uh, I worked with very smart people on very difficult problems, mostly for the government on energy and environmental problems. We weren't in the government. We were just a consulting firm. But it was, you know, three years into that, I kind of said, you know what? 
I don't think I can do this for the rest of my life. And so then I had to make a decision. Am I going to go back to school for economics and become an, you know, an economics major or an economics PhD? Or am I going to change it up completely? And I thought, eh, maybe I'll go to business school and become a, you know, and see if I can get a job in the entertainment business. Because I figured I know how to do stuff now. You know, I got some training in something. Yeah. And that was my plan. Go back to school, see if I can get a job in the entertainment business. Man, that's a... So was your your plan was to get into the entertainment industry using business. Did you have an end goal of, I want to be a comedy writer by the end of this because I've been, you know, I've been in sketch comedy. I've been doing these things in college and that's my secret, like maybe underlying plan. And this is going to be my foot in the door. Or was it, I just want to be, I just want to be in it. I just want to be around it. It was more the latter. I just wanted to be in and around it. I mean, as much fun as I had writing comedy. And I, I will say that in graduate school, I got a chance to write more comedy because um, this is a little digression. We did a, th there was a, a group there that did the Wharton Follies. And that was a musical comedy review mm -hmm. put on by the Wharton graduate students. It was just a handful of us. I say a handful, probably 25. But a lot of these guys were professional you know, actors and performers and choreographers who had come back to business school to get, get into investment banking or something wow. else that was going to make them a better living. So it was a group of very talented people. And the second year I wrote The Follies, I wrote it. And I remembered how much I liked writing comedy. And it, it came out great. It came out great. But I will say that I did not really ever entertain the idea of becoming a comedy writer professionally. I didn't, no, it just didn't seem like that was what I was going to do. I just wanted to be around it. I wanted to be in television or I wanted to be in film and I wanted to have a chance to, you know, maybe make a difference. When you look back and you, uh, you think about how some of the actors went back to business school so they can pursue more stable routes and you were almost the reverse path of that. Do you think that worked in your favor having having done it that way instead of the the flip? Well, the short answer is no. I mean, if somebody had told me before I went back to business school that, you know, listen, you don't really need an MBA to do the things you're looking to do yeah. in the television business. Uh, that would have been helpful. But you don't. I mean, a lot most of the people I worked with who were in programming at HBO or anywhere were not MBAs. They were not MBAs. They were you know, they had studied film or television or English lit or, you know, nothing in particular and wanted to be in film and television, maybe came up through production, you know, where they started as a PA mm -hmm. or maybe came up, uh, you know, working, working with writers, but very few MBAs made it to the product side of the television business from my perspective. Sorry to interrupt. I know I do this every week. I know you're taking some dope information in from Nick, but I got to tell you a secret. If you like what we're doing and want to support, the best way to do that is head on over to nicholastally.com forward slash shop. You can buy a sweatshirt and also support the podcast at the same time. Yes, at the same time. You get something and you're also supporting us. It's a win-win, you know? Another little secret is we are also trying to help people live the best lives possible through the information that we share on the podcast. We make sure it's relevant and things that are going to better your life. So if you like it, post it on your uh, the social medias, the Twitters, the Instagrams, tag your friends, your family, hashtag the Nicholas Natale Show. You get the deal. You probably do social media better than us. 
Anyways, I'll let you get back to the podcast. As always, I'm the intern. See you at the outro. All right, so we're talking MBAs. Not many people at HBO have MBAs, and you are making your way into HBO. When you get to HBO, you land the job. You're hired for forecasting, to, from what I know. But also, where do you come in in the pecking order? You know, Because you ha- if you are starting to have this great idea in the back of your mind, do you have the, the capability to pitch upward or no? Well, here's the good news. HBO was a relatively small company in those days. I think there were probably maybe 800 people there when I got there. Now, I don't know what they have now or had over the years, but I had just come from CBS. And CBS was a huge company. It was just gigantic with lots of layers of management and everything. HBO wasn't like that. And on top of that, everybody at HBO, I say everybody, I don't really mean everybody, but most people were young and excited about television. So the whole vibe there was, hey, we're going to make a new kind of television here. It was the mid 80s. HBO was almost immediately successful. And at that point, making scads of money and really considered the first name in television. I mean, they were Netflix of that time, of that day, you know, and also it was very high quality stuff. So everybody was high-fiving in the halls all the time. It was really fun. So I was low in the pecking order, but it wasn't like there were layers and layers till you got to the top. That said, mm. I couldn't walk into you know a senior vice president's office and say, hi, how you doing? But right. it was a little looser. And when I finally got the nerve to pitch the, my idea for a comedy network, I made an appointment with the head of programming. And she said, okay. You know, you can have an appointment. So as opposed to had I tried that at CBS, it would have been ridiculous. They would have just, they would have just said, uh, no, you know, we don't care what you have to say. So that was an advantage to being at HBO. Now, one of the other reasons I was having to be at HBO to pitch that was HBO was, they were doing great comedy in those days. And I, I thought that with HBO's reputation for comedy, you know, they were doing stand-up specials with Robin Williams and Billy Crystal and those guys, uncut specials. So you were seeing these people, you know, doing their acts in a way that you could only see them do it in a club uh, because it was uncut, Mm -hmm. you know, and the networks weren't doing any uncut stuff. Everybody had to be clean on the networks. So HBO was really kind of blazing a trail there in comedy. So when I went in to pitch the, my idea to the head of, of uh, programming, I assumed at least a, some kind of semi-warm reaction, but <laughs> um, I didn't get it. You were not, not welcomed with any of I, that. I was not welcomed <laughs> with a warm some reaction. serious pushback. Uh, yeah, she just, you know, I said, I said to her, I said, you know, I, I really think HBO should uh, start a 24-7 all comedy network. I think that would be really good for HBO and really good. And she said, stop, stop, stop. She said, that's a terrible idea. It's, it's the worst idea I've ever heard. And, and let me tell you why. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. And there's all kinds of comedy on television as it is. And the big comedians, you know, are not going to want to be on your 24-hour channel. So we're not going to do that. But thanks for coming by. And that was, you know, that was a big bucket of cold water on me about the whole thing. But I, I recovered. I, you know, I pulled myself together and I said, she's wrong uh, to myself. 
I said she's wrong. Yeah. And, so uh, that's what I'm just, curious about. How do you how do you know? How do you how are you so certain that you or maybe that your idea is is good? Because on one hand, you know, she is the head of programming and she is saying we have one hour comedy specials with the biggest names in the industry. We have a good reputation that I'm afraid of tainting is probably somewhat in there too. So how do you walk out of there? You know, I'm sure like a little bit bummed, but still with the idea that, no, I know this is good. I, you know, I don't know if it was just a impetuous, youthful craziness in me. Mm-hmm. I think it really came from the fact that I was so passionate about comedy all my life. I mean, I really thought of comedy as uh, an important thing, as important as music. Let me put it that way. You know, it, it had that kind of weight with me. You know, so you know how people are fans of rockers and and rappers and everything else. I mean, that's how I was about comedy. I loved the comedians. I studied the comedians. I, I listened to the comedy albums of George Carlin and Robert Klein over and over and over. And I was in love with comedy from the time I was a kid. So for me, comedy, I was a comedy nerd and comedy was something I was passionate about. And I just couldn't understand why there wasn't a comedy network. I was convinced someone was going to start it. And I thought, why not me? Or why not us? Because then I can get a job in it, you know? Uh, and that was my plan. Yeah. So how did you go, or maybe I should also ask, how much time elapses before you go from pitching to that pitch in the head of the program's office and then to your manager coming up to your desk and catching you working on the pitch or your idea and being like, that's great. We need to go to the chairman right now. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, you know, I can't give you an exact, it was X days, but it was, a, it was probably a couple, three weeks, you know, okay. it was, okay. That's not too bad. It was, uh, it was in the same period of time. And as a matter of fact, uh, Everybody kept asking me, including my manager and then Michael Fuchs, the head of the program, head of the uh, of HBO. When I pitched it to him, he said the same thing. He said, "Did you talk to the head of programming about this first? Because you know that's what he would have yeah. expected." And I said, "Yeah, she was lukewarm on it. I mean, I you know I didn't want to go into a great <laughs> great detail yeah, about yeah. how I'd been thrown out of her office, so I just said, "No, no, she was lukewarm." Um, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. I got caught working on it because I was going to see if anybody else was interested, like, you know, another media company, or I briefly toyed with the idea of just doing it myself, you know, and uh, wow. raising money. I, I don't know how I thought that this was even possible, but, you know, I was so sure that this was a good, good idea that I was, I just wanted to see it happen. I want to know what you're feeling as you're walking to the head, the head of HBO, the HBO's chairman's office to pitch your idea almost out of the blue, you know, and what's going through your mind? Because I can only imagine <laughs> for me myself, maybe, maybe you were, you know, you, you, you had done all your research, you know, you're very well prepped. So like, cause you've been talking about it, but there's gotta be some level of like, wait, right now, <laughs> like we're really doing this. Wait right now was my initial reaction. I mean, I was I was flabbergasted, partly because, you know, it was hard. Let me set this up for you a little bit. Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, had just been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times magazine. And he was the kind of guy that if I got in the elevator with him accidentally, 
I would break into a cold sweat. I mean, he was really uh, a very big ego and a very big force in the company and in the industry. So the idea that we were going to waltz into his office, and I actually said to, uh, you know, said to my manager, I mean, you, how can we walk in? And he said, oh, no, he's a friend of mine. I, you know, I can, I can just walk in. And that's exactly what we did. We walked in and he, uh, he said, Art's got an idea he wants to hit you with. And uh, Michael Fuchs said, what? First he said, what are you guys doing here? You know, I'm busy, <laughs> as you would expect. Yeah. Um, but but he, then he said, okay, what do you got? And I, I pitched my little heart out for 10 minutes. And I think, I think the reason Michael took me as seriously as he did at that point was that I was so impassioned in my pitch. And I also solved... Um, some of his problems. I mean, he asked questions like, how do we do it cost effectively? Um, and what do you think, what, you know, what's your vision for the channel? What kind of programming, you know, all this stuff. He was asking questions and I was answering them because I had thought about this for such a long time and had, you know, as I said, I'd even gone as far as writing it down, writing a plan. Yeah. So he tosses you some money and he's like, go ahead, go for it. When he gives you this green light, and I'm not sure how much of a, a, a pathway he gave you, do you immediately feel relief, excitement, or some imposter syndrome too of like, well, I've actually never done this. So <laughs> what happens then? How do you feel then? Yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy moment. He didn't say, here's, you know, here's $10 million, go make a channel. He said, and, you know, this was a smart thing to do. He said, look, let's do a little more research, see if there's a market, market out there for a comedy network. Let's, I want you to work with some people in programming who know the comedy business, make a demo tape of what this would look like and do some thinking about it. And then come back in a month or two with a presentation to top management and we'll see where we go from there, you know. Now that was uh, all that said. It sounds like a little limited runway there, you know. You we just want you to taxi around yeah. a little bit before you you get to the head of the runway. But you're right. For me, it was like just a moment of pure joy and terror mixed into one. You know, the whole idea that suddenly somebody opened a this this door that had been padlocked for so long for me, where I was going to get a chance to at least explore the thing, you know. And, uh, and on top of that, the idea that, that he took me seriously, you know, again, I was not a programmer. Yeah. He could have said, good idea. Let me talk to the, Michael could have said, let me talk to the programming guys. And uh, thanks for the idea. Go back to your day job and we'll let you know how things turn out. But no, he, he let me carry the ball, which was great. How many metaphors did I get in there? Yeah, that's a great like six. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Enough. I loved them. But that's a great point because um, I didn't even consider that the fact that he could have been like, "Great idea, I'm going to do it." <laughs> you know, see ya. I'll, I'll, I'll plaster my face all over this idea because I <laughs> like it so much. Which, to, I mean, to his credit, he's already the most powerful man in Hollywood. Why wouldn't he want more more of that attention if it if he believes that it's going to be that good? Um, but you do. You do take off with it, and he did. He did grab. Don't don't get me wrong. He did. He, he didn't make me the face of the network when we launched. That's a good point. <laughs> he was in charge. I mean, he was the he was the boss, uh, and he 
he made a very big point of saying that HBO really knows how to do television and we're going to do a comedy network. And he bragged that it was going to be the funniest thing anybody ever saw and the most successful cable network anywhere. And, you know, I broke into a cold sweat as he was saying these things to the press and to everyone else. Yeah. And it, it did backfire on him a little bit, as you can imagine. Yeah, didn't he have this big press conference about <laughs> about the launch and then you got programming like ripped out from under you eight weeks before or something like that? Something along those lines yeah, where it really is, put you in a hole? Yeah, you, you know, the, the timing was this. I mean, as soon as we decided to do it, as soon as Michael said, you know, I gave the presentation, I pointed out we'd make a lot of money because <clears throat> when, you're, when you're giving a presentation to executives telling them about your new business idea – you always say you're going to make a lot of money, not today, not tomorrow, mm -hmm. but in five years, you're going to be making a fortune. Yeah. It wasn't a lie. I really did believe that we were going to make money with it. And ultimately, of course, it worked. But um, it didn't happen as fast as I projected, which is, is reasonable. But at that point, Michael took the idea and ran with it. And he did. He put a press conference together in L.A., with a lot of, you know, high-end comedians in attendance and bragged about how great a channel this was going to be. And I broke into a cold sweat listening to it. I was there. It was in LA. I, I, I just thought, man, this, if, you know, if it doesn't work, we're, we're going to be in trouble. And Michael's really putting himself in the line of fire here. He could have pinned the whole thing on me and said, yeah. I don't know, this kid's got an idea. We'll see how it works <laughs> out, you know, but he didn't do that. He took complete ownership of it and it seems like maybe i mean you tell me it seems like you guys are starting to catch steam and the reason i say this is because what about six months later mtv comes out with ha which is a good sign right now people are competing with you that must mean your idea is actually good so when that happens what do you think are you like oh wait what somebody else is in the game or <laughs> what do you think well, it was, it, was, it was almost worse than that. Yes, they launched six months after we launched. But in fact, they announced that they were going to launch the day after the press conference. And <laughs> the press conference was, was like, bored. we're going to launch a comedy channel. And then the next day, MTV says, oh, we're going to launch a comedy channel. It was you know, wow. so transparently a press release and not much more thinking had gone into it other than, yeah. look, we can't let HBO get away with this kind of possibility. Uh, we better go up against them. So they put out the press release and yeah, they launched six months after we did. I, it was a crazy moment because, you know, people had fought so hard, not fought, but people had rejected my idea so soundly for so long. Um, mm -hmm. And so I finally got them to say, okay, there's going to be a comedy channel in the world. And then suddenly there's going to be two comedy channels in the world. It was the craziest thing. <laughs> and believe me, I did not want any competition. I had enough problems without competition. That's what I was thinking too. Like, I'm just getting my feet wet here. I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm just trying to figure out this 24-hour programming. The first year goes by. What do you think? Do you give that first year a success or a failure grade? What do you give it on a report card? Well, if you're talking about a year after we launched, I give it a success. Yeah. I give it a success. We had we had a lot of successes in programming. We got an audience. Um, the audience was young, and they were uh, enthusiastic about us. And we launched Mystery Science Theater 3000, which became a huge hit for us. And 
ultimately a huge hit for Comedy Central and is still around in some form, as you may know. Um, so that was that was very successful. And we went against Ha. I mean, the competition between the two channels, it was called the Comedy War by the press. And it, it was intense and it was fierce and it made both of us better. However, we were fighting over audience. We were fighting over programming. We both wanted Saturday Night Live reruns for our channel. We bid up the price to impossible levels. And uh, the MTV network, it was called Ha, by the way. Ha, the comedy channel, mm -hmm. uh, the comedy network. So they bid up the price and they ended up with it. They ended up with Saturday Night Live reruns. And we were we were devastated. You know, we thought, oh, man, this, that's yeah. going to be bad. But let me just point out one lesson that I learned through that whole period, which is never underestimate the competition. Just because nobody took your idea seriously doesn't mean that the competition is going to come flying at you in some way, shape, or form. And I've seen that before and since. Competition is always going to be there. Yeah. And I imagine, if, yeah, part of me still thinks it's like solidifying, you know, even if everyone rejected it before, as soon as competition comes into play, it's okay. Now I have some ground to stand on. Now, now you guys can't say anything because this is suddenly legit. But the thing I'm most fascinated yeah, about, go ahead. In any contest like that, when you're going head to head with somebody, you expect there to be a winner and a loser, mm -hmm. that one of us was going to prevail. And by the end of the year, six months after they launched, I was almost 100% sure that we were going to prevail, that the Comedy Channel was the better concept. We had better ratings. We had better programming. We had a better everything. And uh, we didn't prevail. Uh, what happened is the powers that be, including the cable operators, said having two comedy channels in the world is not going to work. So they merged us. MTV Networks and HBO got together, discussed it at the highest level, and decided to merge us. And I got a phone call that, uh, that they were merging the channels. And I was, as you can imagine, very, very disappointed that that was, that was what happened. So what's your role in this new merger? Because the first question that I have is you have two fierce competitors, which I imagine have two very, maybe, maybe very different strategies on how they're doing things and how their culture and how their company is being ran. And suddenly here they are together, just smack them together. Where do you fall into that? And how do you even manage a, a conglomerate mix? Well, the first thing I thought of when I heard the news was, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my job. Hmm. You know, that's what happens in mergers. Everybody loses their job. Uh, and in fact, that's what happened to a lot of people. But luckily, they called me in and said, okay, all right, we're going to team you up with the head of programming at the other channel. And you guys are going to figure out what programming to put on, who to hire, and what to call the new channel. Because you can't call it either comedy either. channel <laughs> or ha. Which, which really bummed me out because... If you're going to have a comedy channel, you're going to call it the comedy channel, right? But you couldn't call it <laughs> right. anymore. So anyway, the good news was I had a job. They were putting me in charge. They said, you know, you got two piles of programming to work with now. You're in better shape. The difficulty was, as you pointed out, it's not only two different concepts for a comedy channel. It's two different companies, two different company cultures, and a group of people who had never worked together before. And in fact, were beating each other over the head constantly, suddenly 
we're in the same room trying to figure out what this thing's going to look like. And I think the interesting part is the heavy betting on the part of the executives at these two companies at HBO and, and MTV was that it was possible that the, the merged entity, the merged channel would not make it through the year that it would go under. Wow. Yeah. Why would that be on, on the top of mind if they were suddenly so interested in having them compete against each other? Well, I'll tell you, I thought about that a long, for, uh, for a long time. Remember, we started a comedy network. MTV came up with a com- another comedy network. Neither of them in the, in the space of six months to a year was a rip-roaring success financially or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think there was some feeling that maybe the whole Comedy Channel idea wasn't going to work. You know, there was not room in the world for a comedy network. And merging them was a way to, for everybody to save face. Hey, you know, we didn't win. They didn't win. We're going to merge them. The merge oh. channel will go on. And then everybody's like, hey, it was a merger. So uh, it's a little bit speculation, but I have it on pretty good authority that that's, that's what was going on. However, both sides, me, my opposite number at Ha, and all mm-hmm. the people we put together from both of those entities really wanted to see a comedy network work. You know, they really wanted to see it happen. And we, I won't say instantly, but pretty quickly came to terms on who was doing what, what we were going to do, what we were going to program, how we were going to do it. And we became a team very fast. And I have to say this, it was almost more difficult to get through the merger and get that happening that quickly. It was almost more difficult to do that than to launch the channel initially because you know, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different things swirling around, and a lot of unknowns. Then what would you say the biggest contributor toward making it a success? Because so far, it seemed like all struggle, 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 struggle. The merger happens, you guys are struggling, but now you're starting to figure things out, you're working together. But then, like, we're here today. Comedy Central is still here today. There had to have been some some shift sometime soon where, you know, there was a big impact where success started. Things started looking up. What was it? Well, yeah, you know, that's exactly what happened. And by the way, it is th- the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central's launch wow. this April. So, you know, talk about a long-lasting comedy cultural icon. I mean, it's, it's something to be proud of for everybody, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who've worked there over the years um, and have made it such a success. The, the, I think the first marker of success for us, the first time I really thought, okay, this is, this is not ever going to fail, is when we, did, we started covering news mm. and politics. And that was in 1992. A couple of things happened. One, we did uh, a live live coverage of the State of the Union address, the President's State of the Union address, and that was that just came up as an idea in a meeting we had of some people, and we were just brainstorming ideas about like, hey, what what can we do to get some attention, you know? And somebody said, well, the President's going to give the State of the Union address, and somebody else said, so what? And then somebody else said, hey, why don't we just cover it? Why don't we just cover it live and make, you know, make 
smart alecky remarks about what the president's saying. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it's an idea. And suddenly we make, you know, we had something to make happen. And when we did, and by the way, Al Franken was the first host of, of that. He was the first wow. comedic host of the presidential State of the Union, undressed, we called it. And hmm. it was a big success. It was a big success. It was live. And I remember the next day, the LA Times did an article saying that oh, these guys at Comedy Central, they are really doing some interesting stuff. This, they are really doing some innovative comedy. And I thought, yeah, that's part of what this is about, innovative comedy. Comedy that can't happen anywhere else. Comedy that's not going to be done by CBS, NBC, HBO, mm -hmm. Showtime, nobody. Just us. And that's what that's how it happened. Um, we went on to do more coverage of politics and news. Obviously, you can draw a straight line between that and The Daily Show, which happened a few years later. Jon Stewart did um, did some early coverage for us on the on the conventions, and we knew he was he was gonna he was gonna be a star, and he was great on The Daily Show. Obviously, he was a um, he deserved all the all the acclaim that he got for that show. It was really something. And you think about that show. You think about the fact that so many people, so many younger people who hadn't watched news before said, yeah, I get my news and information mm -hmm. from Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. It's incredible. That's how we made an impact. We also launched Politically Incorrect the same year with Bill Maher. Yeah. And that was another notable moment where – as soon as Bill Moore pitched us a show and said, look, I want to do a show that's going to get me in trouble and it's going to get the network in trouble, mm -hmm. we said, good, you're on. Because, hey, what's <laughs> comedy yeah. without getting in trouble, right? See also my underground newspaper, The Tongue. Yeah. I knew that was yeah. part, of the, part of the deal. So that's what we did. Yeah, it was around then. We'd been, we'd been Comedy Central for about a year, year and a half, and I start, we started to see the upswing. One business thing that happened – we were attracting an audience that turned out to be younger and male. Mm -hmm. And the the young male demographic is the toughest demographic to get in television. Really? So guess what? We got, yes, we got to sell it for lots and lots of money. Yeah, it was hard to get young men. They were either watching sports or nothing, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's yeah. what it came down to. Um, so yeah, we had a lot to sell. And our business fortunes improved immeasurably. Lucky us. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you have a great point about like you're giving comedy a new home, like a, a home for all different types of comedy to come and actually have a place to to live, like offbeat, you know, like you said, with just like something to get people, get me in trouble kind of comedy. That didn't really have a home before that. You're saying you're saying a lot. We we actually referred to Comedy Central as a place. We we had our announcer who was Penn Gillette. He always he always announced, you know, if the show was going to, you know, if he was doing a tune in promotion, he'd say, you know, watch Bill Maher at seven o'clock here at Comedy Central, not on mm. Comedy Central, here yeah. at Comedy Central, because we wanted people to think of us as a an actual location, a place where we were making comedy twenty four hours a day, and it. it that's what we wanted. We wanted it to be a place. Seems like you guys pulled it off, I would say. Thinking about <laughs> the the talent you got to work with, I think um, I'm kind of I'm projecting here. It seems like the talent then 
probably had more access and maybe more say in how things were done because of maybe just the nature of it being so new. What was your experience like working with talent and comedians during that time? Maybe some best and worst moments. Was it, was it great? Was it terrible? A little bit of both? Yeah, it was, listen, comedians and comedy writers and people in the comedy business, they're like everybody else. There's a range of people. My initial introduction into the comedy business was not a warm and welcoming one. Hmm. I mean, you gotta, you gotta remember, I was an upstart. The first thing that the head of comedy at HBO said when they put us together and said, you guys, you know, think about what a comedy channel would look like was he said, what do you know about comedy? Yeah. And he must have said that 25 times the first week. What, what do you know about comedy? Essentially, he was saying, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. how did you get here? And and uh, I had to learn the comedy business. I really didn't know anything about the comedy business. And I was surrounded by comedy professionals, uh, people who had been working in comedy for 10 years. I'd been working in comedy for like three days. So <laughs> yeah. that was that was very hard. Um, but by the time I got to Comedy Central, I was a little more accustomed to, you know, what the business was like, working with the talent. I worked with Jon Stewart from, you know, a little bit early on, and that was great. He was a terrific guy to, to kind of hang out with. Um, I worked with Bill Maher. I mean, he pitched the show directly to us and uh, directly to me. We were in a diner when he pitched the show. And I cool. thought, hey, you know, he's a great guy. Yeah. But not, shortly thereafter, and this is an episode that I recount in my book, uh, which I, I, I suggest everybody read. But shortly thereafter, he got mad at me for something. And I won't go into the whole story, but he got mad at me and he tried to have me fired. So that is the kind of range of experience I yeah, had yeah. With, with the talent. Did they have more or less um, impact on what we were doing or how they were doing it than they do now? I think, you know, hard to say, I think it really depends on the project, the talent, mm. you know, if it's somebody who's very established and famous, they usually have a lot more to say about the project. And if they're not, they have less to say. That's all. Yeah. That makes sense to me. What piece of advice would you give to those aspiring comedians out there who, who now dream of being on Comedy Central and things <laughs> like that? Uh, it's really about perseverance. It's really about hanging in there, doing the work performing at every opportunity, writing, you know, constantly making sure you're honing your, your act and, and, and getting your, getting things down to a, to the point where the timing is perfect. So that when you do have a chance to get in front of somebody who's going to make a difference, you've got 10 minutes that's going to, you know, really floor them. I, I'm not telling any, anybody anything they don't know or haven't heard, but that's, that's what it's about. I, I'll throw that one out to people who say, Hey, I wonder what it takes to be a comedian. That's what mm. it takes. Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 great advice. Now, okay, so let's wrap. You have this. I'm gonna say you have this great experience of now. Comedy Central is very good. You know, it's like you're, it's living. It's fun. You know, it's probably hard work, but now it's even more rewarding because you're seeing an impact and things are going well. But then, ah, oh, some management changes happen, right? And it's time to come to yeah. a close in your your career with Comedy Central. Can you tell me what happened, and can you tell me how personally did you take that that 
management changed and you being exited? Yeah, I got fired. Um, and I got fired because they, they fired my boss, who was the president of Comedy Central, mm-hmm. who had been brought in for the merger, as you recall. He was a finance guy um, and a good finance guy. But they wanted somebody at the top who was more comedy-oriented. So they, they brought somebody in from MTV, which was fair enough. And, uh, but when that happens, when your boss gets fired in the television business, you gotta, you gotta assume that things are not going to go great for you. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I got fired and the guy who fired me said, you know, look, I can't keep you around because you're so associated with what's going on around here and I got to go in new directions. But it was a devastating blow for me. It really was. It was devastating because I had taken the channel so personally and I vowed from that day on never to take any work that I was doing, any business, even if it was even if it was my own business that I started, to not take, try not to take it that personally. Um, I'm not sure I made good on that promise, but I, I just it it was it was so painful to be separated from Comedy Central at that moment. I don't even like to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Do you still agree with that sentiment of not taking any of the business too personally? Because I imagine that's the highs and the lows. It's what makes it great and it what it's what makes it hurt. You know, I went into my next job. I, I spent some years consulting and learning a lot more about television. I ended up at Court TV. I was president of Court TV. And of course, I took it very, very personally. <laughs> because I think it was more about me and the way I operated than right. anything else. Right. That if I was doing the job, I was going to throw myself into it 110%. I was going to learn what I had to learn. I was going to work very hard to make whatever I was doing a success. And I really brought that, that feeling to everything I did, whether it was work or other things. Sometimes people found that annoying. Take, for example, my wife. She and I took an Italian class together, and I I know this doesn't sound like it's relevant, but she said I spent too much time doing my homework. I was too serious about it. I made the whole thing not very much fun for her. (laughs) And I said, yeah, but you're good at languages and I'm not, so I had to work hard. But she said, no, no, you work hard at everything you do. And I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But I want to, you know, I want to achieve you know, you think about it as I'm saying it. It's not like I'm particularly brilliant at anything. I've I've written a book. I love writing, but I, you know, I'm not Philip mm. Roth. I've um, been a television guy. I've been successful, but there are people who are better at it, and more successful. I, I just think I just wanted to get to a certain level of competence in whatever I did, so that I could make a difference. And I think I have. I would definitely say so. I I mean. I would say I almost know so. Like the impact you've had on generations, right? Like you've changed the way television is done. You've changed the way or what people get to consume in humor and comedy and how they consume it and when they consume it. And like it's it's crazy. Like I imagine many people have testimonials of how Comedy Central has impacted their lives. My dad, for example. That was his routine, right? Come home really? from work, watch Comedy Central, watch a stand-up comedian. Like, really? it, and and we, I, I almost feel like sometimes we, as a society, you know, whatever, neglect how important like 
humor is and how important to be entertained is. And Comedy Central did that for a lot of people. Yeah, well, as I said, I'm very proud of it. I certainly didn't, you know, I was the instigator more than anything else. And I, I did spend eight years building it. And I'm very proud of that. But as I said, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people who worked on it, who were brilliantly creative in so many ways and just, you know, not beyond the comedians and beyond the comedy writers and beyond the producers, just everybody working on it. I was always astounded at the great stuff that came out of there uh, when I was there and after I was there. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's still going, it'll still keep going on. It's, it's still going. I have to ask this question without a doubt. So what's your hot take on this? The stories that you can, you can only tell on cable that can't be told anywhere else. What's your hot take on that? Now we have all these other platforms, but what do you think? Well, I think, I think that cable, you know, really made a difference in the world because it did break the taboo of using foul language and, 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 uh, and addressing difficult problems and really kind of, especially in comedy, allowing the comedians to, uh, to stretch and to spread out and to do what they were best at. I mean, before that, all the comedy on television was not only squeaky clean, but it stayed away from the tough subjects. Lenny Bruce wasn't going to make it on television, uh, certainly not on the networks. So HBO, you know, again, I credit HBO with a, with a lot of that because they, they gave comedians a platform to do what they did best. And of course, everybody followed. Um, and without that, things would have been a lot different. Going forward, I mean, we've got Netflix, Amazon, we've got, you know, great programming from coming from all over the world now to those places. Streaming is becoming a big deal, as it should. Uh, television on demand. I, I think this is the golden age of television now, certainly a golden age of television. Lots of great product around. And I think everybody's sitting home watching all this programming now, sadly, because of the pandemic. But realize should realize that you know how how wonderful the programming is now because of all the places that it, it's come from uh and can come from yeah i just i just think uh, it's amazing i certainly agree with that it's we have more now than we could ever have ever wanted in the past option overload um right another question i'd like to ask you is what's your hot take on political correctness in the world of comedy. This is something that boggles my mind day in and day out. Is there a line with comedy? Will, will we ever get back to being able to, you know, even say more jokes? What do you think? What do you think about it now? And where do you think it's going to go? Listen, historically, this has been the question with comedy. Yeah. You know, as I, I just mentioned, Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce was, you know, he was arrested hundreds of times on stage for saying things that, somebody, society, people said, you can't say that. You can't talk about those things. He was talking about race. He was talking about women. He was talking about, you know, things that should have been talked about in a comedic way. They didn't want him talking about it. Um, you know, fast forward through Mort Saul and, 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 you know, some of the political comedians and, and George Carlin, the seven words you can't say on TV. Uh, you know, there's a line and comedians will go up to the line and they will step across the line mm -hmm. and then they will step back. And mm -hmm. that's how comedy works. 
So if what you want to do is tell comedians, okay, you know where the line is, but you're not allowed to step over it anymore. I think that's going to change the nature of comedy. And it's it's going to change the way we laugh at things or address things comedically. And I think it's going to be, um, it's going to result in a great loss for, for society. I, I don't think it will last. I know that that's what's going on now. I think it'll swing back. I hope that comedians push the envelope, continue to push it, because they have a lot to say. I mean, you think about women comedians who, you know, when I when I started in comedy, there weren't that many, but now, you know, there's lots and lots of women comedians. Think about their contribution, not only to Me Too recently, but just the women's, you know, talking about women, the the experience as an American woman in the 90s and, you know, and beyond, and how important that was for all of us to have an understanding of what it's like to be a woman, you know, because we're guys, Mm -hmm. you and I, and we don't know. But that was a very important, a very important development. And I think that if you want people to stop talking about things, you know, that's not going to be good. I agree. Comedy has a great way of delivering real truth in a way that's easier to receive. Um, a lot of times, that's right. You want to be able to, you want to be able to look at the world through a comedian's eyes mm-hmm. for a little while, because it may give you a way to perceive something in a way you hadn't before, consider something in a way you hadn't before and learn about it. I mean, certainly these days, everybody is, uh, you know, should be encouraged to listen to everybody else and to listen to opposing ideas. And if you get it coded in comedy rather than vitriol, <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Art, we are coming to the final question of the podcast. And before okay. I ask it, I, I want to say- I get this one right. I think you'll knock it out of the park. It's a nice softball for you to launch. Um, I want to say, one, I'm so grateful you you came on the show to tell your story. And I think your story is super impactful. And I'm super thankful that you chose to be persistent and make that idea that you had become a reality because we wouldn't have so much of what we have in the comedy culture today. It's you know, maybe somebody would have made the same idea, but it would be wildly different than what it is today. And I think it's exactly how it should have been. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for telling your story and caring so much about comedy, because I think it's very important. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. That's nice. Absolutely. So the final question is now, after you've, you know, you've done Comedy Central, you've done Court TV, you did 3D television for a little bit. Now when you're, you're, thinking about things, what fulfills you? What gives you the most fulfillment now? Well, I've been writing for a few years and, uh, you know, some of that writing ended up in the book. Some of the writing ended up elsewhere. I'm writing fiction as well. And I am really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I felt like a writer for a long time. And as, as I mentioned through the show, throughout the show, there were times when I was writing stuff and I really enjoyed it. So now I have the opportunity to write all the time, and uh, <laughs> I say that I don't write all the time. You know, <laughs> it's hard to get yourself to sit down sometimes and do the writing. But when I do, it it really is fulfilling. It really is great. The other thing in my life is music, 
Um, I play piano and I play drums, and I love that. And that uh, that gives me a lot of pleasure. Music has always been a part of my life. Love it. Love to hear it. Art, where can people connect with you on the internet? Where can they find your book? Tell them all the goodies. Okay, yeah, that's that's uh, that's important to talk about. If they want to learn more about me and my book, they can go to artbellwriter.com. If you want to buy my book, you can go to Amazon where it's sold. Um, and again, the name of the book is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. It's a memoir. So I encourage you to do that. And uh, I hope to hear from you. Those of you who read it, I hope to hear how you like it. Absolutely. And everything Art just mentioned is going to be in the show notes. I can say right now, I'm going to buy the book. So if that gives you any more reason <laughs> to buy the book, do it. Um, Art, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Nicholas, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Till next time. That was the episode. Uploads every Friday at 6 a.m. Next week, we will have on Ron Blake. Ron Blake is on a now five-year cross-country odyssey to overcome PTSD from a rape and finally become a guest on The Late Night Show with Stephen Colbert. That's his goal. He gave a TED Talk about the significance of this show and his recovery and a moment of laughter on a suicidal night that changed everything for him. Ron has spent 14,000 hours of effort trying to get on the show for just five minutes. He's met over 35,000 total strangers one by one along the way who have written amazing stories of their trauma and triumph in 94 languages on over 500 giant foam poster boards. And the artwork on these poster boards represents that no one is alone in healing. Blake has spoken at 27 colleges, testified before Senate Judiciary Committee, been featured in an Emmy-nominated documentary, and received a letter of thanks from Pope Francis for his inspirational work. That's pretty crazy. The episode is already recorded, and I can say with 100% sincerity, it's a banger. Quick reminder from our sponsors of this episode, Scott Anderson, the legend, is an entrepreneur coach that's excited to get your business to the next level. As a listener, you can cash in your free consultation call by visiting doubledareyou.us. You already know how to spell it. I feel like I've said it many, many a times, uh, but you should, you should definitely get your free consultation call, grow that business, break through those plateaus, baby. Scott's got my full endorsement. Since you're going online, go ahead and go to nicholasitalli.com slash shop. Get the merch, youtube.com slash nicholasitalli for videos every single Monday. We've got a great side hustle series coming up. It's going to happen and leave a five-star review for this podcast. Do it and share this episode with a friend, sponsor, all that stuff. Nicholas Italian on Instagram, hit me up. The real reason you're still here, though, is you want to know the riddle, the answer to the riddle. What has a lot of eyes but can't see? A potato. Or a potato. We love you guys, and I will see you. We'll see you next Friday at 6 a.m. Goodbye. <laughs>